All right, before we jump into our sermon this morning, I wanted to let you know about a couple things. First of all, uh, I would love to invite any of you who are graduating seniors to join us on our stint projects. Stint, short-term international. They're trips that go overseas for one to two years to take the gospel to some of the most unreached places on the planet. So for one or two years, if you're graduating in May, you have the opportunity to go with us to share your faith with college students who've never heard about Jesus, never heard about what he did on the cross. We have trips going to Greece, to East Asia, and to a Muslim country that we can't talk about. We just call it trade winds for security's sake. Um, we would love to have you apply. You can go to applyforstint.com or you can email or call Jamie Bryant up here at the church. Jamie Bryant, he runs that program for us. So We'd love to have you go on stint with us. Second thing to let you know about, we're in the middle of Easter week, and so this morning we're celebrating uh, Palm Sunday. Next Sunday we'll celebrate Easter Sunday, but something happened in between, right? Good Friday. Jesus died. And so this Friday... Our whole church, us at Southwood and all of them at Anderson, we are going to all gather together at the Anderson campus at 7 p.m. to celebrate the death of Jesus. So come join us. Brian and I will be leading you all through a contemplation of the meaning of the death of Jesus. 7 p.m. at Anderson. We can't provide child care, but we'd love to have you come join us for that time. All right, let's, uh, let's start by letting me uh, tell you something that you may not know about me. Seems inconsequential. I'll connect the dots later. Um, you may not know that uh, I actually really, I don't like garage sales. Not at all. I, I hate garage sales. I used to live in a neighborhood that was full of garage sales. I, I, like every Saturday morning, I swear, there were garage sales going on, and it was crazy, and there were people honking their horns, and it always woke me up, and, and I really was frustrated because I, I don't like garage sales. A garage sale requires you to give up your day off. You got to go on a Saturday and, and rush around town to look through other people's junk, the stuff they don't want anymore. And not only do you have to give up a Saturday, but man, garage sales are competitive in this town. You got to wake up before dawn to get anything that's good. And so you got to wake up really early and get out there and compete. I, I don't like garage sales. Really don't like them. With one exception, I really do like Plano garage sales. Plano, little town north of Dallas with some really nice subdivisions in it. When I was at seminary, Julie and I lived in Dallas and, and we would watch the, the paper because we were paying attention to see on a Saturday morning, was there a garage sale in a certain, these few certain neighborhoods in Plano? Because we knew if there was a garage sale on one of those Saturdays, it would be worth waking up at 4 a.m. to get out there because those people aren't messing around. Man, those people give away furniture that is nicer than the new stuff I buy. In fact, I have a lot of, furniture, of their furniture in my house because it was great stuff that was being given away. It was incredible. These people aren't messing around in Plano. So um, garage sales attract us because we have the hope of finding a treasure that someone is giving away for, for next to nothing. So I don't know if you read this story in the news this week about a garage sale up in New York. Happened back in 2007. A family went to a garage sale and they found a a little white ceramic vase about five inches in diameter. Looked all right. Sold for three bucks. They thought, sure, we'll buy that. So they buy this little vase for $3 and they have a sense that maybe this is old. Maybe it has some value. So they take it to an appraiser and find out it's a thousand year old Chinese vase. It's one of only two in existence. And so this week they auctioned it off at Sotheby's for $2.2 million. $2.2 million. Never heard a profit like that. That's crazy. $2.2 million from a $3 vase. That's why we go to garage sales. Because you want to be the person who finds the 
$2.2 million vase being given away for three bucks. You want to find a treasure that someone is giving away because they did not recognize the value of it. Now, here's why I tell you these stories about garage sales, because what you may not realize is that the death of Jesus Christ is so very much like that vase. Something of absolutely priceless value that most of the world cares nothing about. We we know, we're here because we know that the death of Jesus is valuable. The, the, The cross hanging on the wall there, it's not just for decor. It's there because we believe the cross is the center of our faith. The death of Jesus is the foundation of our religion. It's everything to us. It's our hope. It's our joy. It's our peace. We celebrate it every Sunday morning. We we thank God for it every day of our lives because we know the death of Jesus, it's important. It's significant. It's priceless. But to most of the world, the death of Jesus is insignificant. Relatively insignificant. For much of the world, the death of Jesus is insignificant because they don't know anything about it. I don't know if you realize that there are still hundreds of millions of people on this planet who have never heard about Jesus. His death is meaningless for them because they don't know anything about it. That's why we need some of you to go on stint with us because there's lots of people who don't know yet. For other people on the planet, his death is meaningless even though they have heard about it because they don't believe in it. They don't think that it actually happened. Jesus and, and the whole crucifix thing, it's just a myth to them, a superstition to them. And then to others, uh, they believe that a guy named Jesus really did die on a cross about 2,000 years ago, but his death is insignificant to their daily experience. They don't have any idea why it should matter. Maybe they heard about Jesus growing up when their grandparents took him to church, but they've never thought about it since that time. Jesus is insignificant to their daily lives. His death means nothing to them. And so here's the question that I want us to look at this morning. How do we, who who believe that the death of Jesus is priceless, how do we communicate the value of the death of Jesus Christ to a world who thinks it's insignificant? How do we communicate the value of the cross to the world? I, I am trusting that you are here this morning because you believe the death of Jesus is valuable, but are you prepared? Are you ready to be able to explain to your non-Christian friend, your non-Christian relative, to your neighbor, to your classmate, what the death of Jesus is all about? If you were sitting with them at lunch this afternoon, you're sitting with someone who's not a Christian, they didn't go up in the church, and they look over and they see a crucifix. You're wearing a crucifix, and they ask, why do you wear that cross? What will you say? Do you have a clear and compelling answer ready? Or here's a harder one. What if they, what if they hear what you say about the cross and, and they ask, well, why did your God have to die for you to be forgiven? Why couldn't he just forgive you like we forgive each other? What's that all about? Are you ready to answer that question? If not, don't worry, you're not alone. Most Christians have a sense that the, the cross means something, that the death of Jesus is significant, but they're not exactly clear Why? Not exactly clear why Jesus had to go to the cross. They're still fuzzy on that. And so this morning, I have the privilege, I've really been looking forward to this for a long time, I have the privilege of walking you through the significance of the cross. I'm going to help you understand clearly and compellingly what the death of Jesus is all about, why it matters, why we believe that it is priceless. I want to walk you through the reasons why Jesus chose to die. They didn't have to, so why did he? Why did Jesus go to the cross? 
To answer that question, we have to begin with a problem, a problem that's revealed in Romans 3. So turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at a lot of different passages this morning, but most of them will be in the book of Romans, so you can just leave your finger in Romans. We'll just be there most of the morning. Look at Romans chapter 3, where Paul reveals that humanity has a, a serious problem. All human beings have a problem that is far more serious than, than sickness or poverty or anything like that, a, a problem that the Bible calls sin. Look with me at Romans 3.23. Most of you probably already knew I was headed here. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a problem, and that problem is called sin. We are sinners. Now, what is sin? Well, the the theological definition of sin, according to this passage, is, is to fall short of God's glorious standards of righteousness. God has revealed righteousness, holiness. It's up here. We all fall short of that standard. That is sin. Now, that, that, that definition is theologically correct, but it's hard for somebody to grasp who didn't grow up in the church. So when you're sitting across the table from your non-Christian friend who knows next to nothing about Christianity, how are you going to communicate the meaning of sin? Well, here's how I do it. If I'm talking to somebody who doesn't understand this concept, I say, well, the Bible reveals that God loves us. God loves us and wants what's best for us. And so out of love, out of grace, God revealed to us in his word, the Bible, how to live a good life. He revealed to us what is right, what is good, what is helpful and and loving. He revealed to us speech that is right and thoughts that are right and actions that are right. And so to sin is simply to do the opposite. To do that which is wrong, to do that which is bad rather than that which is good, that which is right. To sin is simply to give in to to the sinful, to the bad, to the evil impulses that we all have within us. Sin includes giving in to pride, it includes giving in to lust, and to dishonesty, and to discontentment, and to laziness, and to anger, uh, any of those things. And, And you begin to rattle off for people what all is included in sin, and it doesn't take long before they're shaking their head, yeah. Okay, that's how you're going to define sin. Any time you give in to pride or selfishness, lazy, laziness or lust, dishonesty or pride, greed. Okay, yeah, all honest human beings will admit we're sinners. We get that. But here's what most people don't understand. They get it that they're sinners. What they don't understand is the seriousness of sin. They don't understand why sin matters. So you take them to Romans 1. Look at Romans 1 verse 18. Here's why sin matters. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul tells us sin is a big deal. Sin is a serious deal because sin has a consequence. A serious, devastating consequence called wrath. The penalty of sin is the wrath of of God. Now, what is God's wrath? Well, God's wrath is simply God's righteous punishment of sin. Wrath is simply God giving sin what sin deserves, God pouring forth his, his perfect justice upon human sin. The Bible is very clear. The last place you want to ever be is under the wrath of God because our God is holy and infinite and almighty. And so his wrath is holy and infinite and almighty. That's the basis behind the biblical teaching about hell. What is hell? 
Hell is the place where God's wrath is poured out for all eternity. It's a place you never want to be, where God punishes sin righteously. The penalty of sin is wrath. That is the inescapable penalty of sin. There's nothing that we can do to escape that. And notice Paul says very clearly in verse, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all of it, not just the really bad stuff. We human beings, we like to rate sin, right? We have to rate bad deals, bad things. So, so we have murder up here. That's really bad. Genocide, maybe, maybe even worse for that one. And then there's our sins, like running a red light. That's no big deal, right? So we rate sin. We distinguish it on a scale. What we don't understand is that's not how sin works. That's not what sin is. Sin is any disobedience against God. Falling short of his standard in any way. That's what sin is. God is holy. God is almighty. God is perfect. His standard was not mostly good, right? His standard was all good. He wants us to be perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly giving all the time. And any time we fall short of that, in any way, that is sin and the penalty of sin is always the same. It is the almighty, unending, holy wrath of God. So that's a pretty significant problem. The penalty of sin is the wrath of God. Now, some of you would really wish at this point that I would stop talking about wrath. We don't really like to hear about wrath, do we? It's like the least popular thing that I preach on. You'd really rather me talk about love this morning, and here I am talking about wrath, and it's making you uncomfortable because most of us, if we're honest, we feel on some days like we wish that God didn't have the whole wrath thing, right? You wish that God was just merciful all the time. Why can it not just be all grace all the time with God? Why do we have to have this wrath thing in there? But if you stop and think about it for a moment, what you'll realize is that um, we actually do not want a God who doesn't have wrath. You really don't want a God who doesn't punish sin. Think about a human judge who chose not to punish sin. Think about a judge. One morning he wakes up and he just thinks, man, I'm, I'm such a hard guy. I'm just going to be nice. From now on, I'm going to be so nice, in fact, that I'm just going to give mercy to anyone who comes in my courtroom. No matter what they've done, I'm just going to let them go. I'm just going to dismiss their sin. How would we feel about that guy? Well, you kick him out of office because we want to live in a just world. Human beings hate injustice. We bristle at injustice. We want righteousness to be upheld and crime to be punished. Let me give you another example. I was reading this week in, in the news about a, a man in Florida who many years ago sexually abused multiple members of his family, his daughter, other young female relatives, and his family did horrible stuff to them. And so the guy is caught and he is brought before a grand jury and they indict him easily. And the judge looks at the evidence and it is clear. There is no doubt that this guy is guilty. There's just one problem. The statute of limitations had expired. It was too long ago. So they had to dismiss the crime. It was as if it never happened and the guy was free to go. Are you okay with that? I'm not. That makes my stomach turn. I hate injustice. Human beings, we hate injustice. We want to live in a world that is moral, a world that is righteous, a world where sin and evil are punished and righteousness is rewarded. So you want a God who is righteous. You want a God who exercises wrath. That is how God upholds the law in his universe, how he makes things right. God must punish sin. And because all of us are sinners, that means all of us deserve God's wrath. So really big problem so far, really bad news, but it gets worse. Here's the worst part of it. There is nothing that we can do 
to escape that penalty. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 20. Here's what the human race assumes. We assume that if we do enough good deeds, God will simply dismiss our sin. Right? We, we see life as if it's a scale. Put enough good deeds on the good side and they'll outweigh your sin and God will dismiss your sin. Right? That's what we assume, but Paul says very clearly that's not how justice works. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. To be justified, to, to be declared righteous, to, to have the judge bang the gavel on the bench and say, you are okay, you are acquitted, you are free. What Paul's saying, there's no amount of good deeds you can do to earn acquittal from God. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do to erase your sin. Now that shouldn't surprise us. Think again about the guy in Florida. Let's imagine that, that his case did go to trial and you're on the jury. And you find out, he, sure enough, he did all of these bad things, but he also did a lot of good stuff in his life. He, he volunteered in a soup kitchen and he gave away lots of money to poor people and he helped elderly people. Would that change your decision? Would you say, you know what, all those good deeds, that excuses his sin. Let's just let that go. No, because that's not how justice works. It doesn't matter what good things he's done. It doesn't erase the evil, the crime that he has committed. There are no good deeds that we can do, no church attendance, no charitable giving that can ever erase the evil of our sin. That reality led Isaiah to depressingly conclude all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They count nothing for us in the sight of God. The human race has a serious problem. We are all sinners, and the penalty of that sin is God's holy and unending wrath, and there is absolutely nothing we can do to fix that problem. And so, in love, God sent his son Jesus to fix what we could not. He sent his son Jesus to do what we could not, to fix our sin problem. That is what the cross is about. That is the first and most significant reason why Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross to fix our sin problem. Now, to help us understand that, how did Jesus' death fix our sin problem? I'm going to give you three words this morning. Three words that you may not use very often. They're kind of theology words. You hear them in church, but, but not on a regular basis. But they're very significant words. They're all found in Scripture. And whether you realize it or not, they are some of the best news in your entire life. They're, they're the foundation of all of your hope, of all of your joy, of all of your future. So we're going to look in detail at these three words. I'm going to give you a simple definition that you can memorize for each of them so you know what these words mean. I hope these words make their way back into our everyday vocabulary because they're so significant. So how did the death of Jesus, how did, how did the cross fix our sin problem? First word that you need to know is propitiation. The cross is where Jesus propitiated our sin. Now, that's a big word you don't use very much. It sounds weird to you, but it's got a really simple definition to propitiate. All it means is that Jesus took your punishment in your place. As John says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John begins this verse with, with what is perhaps the most wonderful and surprising truth that you will find anywhere in scripture. God loves us. 
The almighty, infinite, holy, perfect creator has chosen to love us. He loves us, but there is a problem. We are sinners. God must be righteous, so he must punish sin. So how can God reconcile his love and his justice? What's the answer? How can God come out of this still loving us and still righteous? The answer, propitiation. He sent his son to take the righteous punishment of sin in our place. Here's what propitiation looks like. Some years ago, the story is told of a leader of the Cossack people in Asia who passed a law. From from this point forward, anyone who is found guilty of stealing food will be given 30 lashes on their bare back. Not long after, a thief was caught in a cloak, brought before the leader, and the, and the hood of the cloak was pulled back, and the leader was suddenly looking down at his elderly mother, who had stolen food out of hunger. Now, what's he going to do? If he simply dismisses her, then the whole foundation of his rule is compromised. He can't show favoritism like that. Righteousness, the law would be compromised. He must be righteous, but he loves her. She's his mother, so what does he do? He takes his shirt off, He wraps his arms around his mom and he takes the 30 lashes in her place. As the cane falls down upon her, it hits him instead. That's propitiation. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's where God's punishment was poured out upon our sin, but it didn't hit us. It hit Jesus instead. He satisfied the righteous demands of the wrath of God in our place. And what we've got to understand here is we think about propitiation, such a weird word. What we have to understand about this funny word is that without propitiation, God could never forgive you. Not ever. Not ever. God is holy. He is righteous. He could never dismiss your sin. That was never an option. If Jesus would have said no, if Jesus would not have gone to the cross and taken your punishment for you, then you would be lost forever. Propitiation is the one and only thing that makes forgiveness possible. So propitiation, I hope it's a word that will come back into your vocabulary. It's the basis of everything for you. Your hope, your joy, your peace, your love, your eternity is founded upon the propitiation of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He took the punishment our sins deserved in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Propitiation is what has made possible the second word, Second key word, we don't use it a lot, very significant word, to redeem. By dying in our place, Jesus has redeemed us from sin. To redeem simply means to set us free from sin's penalty. Redemption is when someone steps in on behalf of of another. When when you come and and you find that someone is, is trapped in a desperate situation that they can't deliver themselves from and you reach down and you deliver them, that is redemption. Here's an illustration of it. Here's what it looks like. Um, before Julie and I had kids, um, we wanted a pet. wanted something to be able to play with. And, and for us, it was a cat. I know some of you are dog people. Uh, we're not. We're cat people. And so we decided we're going to go get a cat. And let's, let's, let's make this a neat thing. Let's go deliver a cat. And so we went down to the Brenham shelter. And we found all of these kitties who were in this, this cage. And, and you know, the, the shelter, it's nice. But it's still, it's, it's kind of like a prison. And, and if they're stuck there and they never get out, then they're going to be put down. And that's really sad. So we go and, and we're going to get a cat. And they open the door. And all these cats jump down. And they start running around and doing all this crazy stuff except this one cat this one kind of brownish gray cat that jumps down and walks straight to my wife and hops up in her lap and begins to purr it's like the best case of marketing i have ever seen <laughs> it's amazing we fell in love with that cat right there we had to deliver this cat so we paid a price 
to the pound to deliver Maggie from the cage. That's redemption. You reached out. She couldn't deliver herself. She could not set herself free, so we did. That's redemption. It's what God talks about. It's what is uh, the, purpose, the point of Ephesians 1, 7, what Paul says in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You have been redeemed, just like my cat Maggie. You've been redeemed, and the price of your redemption was not small. It was not insignificant. It was the blood of God the Son. Jesus' own precious blood, his life, was the incalculably pricey ransom that was given so that you could be set free from sin. Jesus has redeemed us, and Paul helpfully, he clarifies here, what is the effect of redemption? It is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Because Jesus redeemed us, God could forgive us. To forgive means that you no longer hold sin against someone. God no longer holds your sin against you. There is no wrath stored up for you because your sins have been forgiven through the redemption that's found in the blood of Jesus Christ. So by propitiating our sins, Jesus has redeemed us from sin. He has set us free from the penalty of sin. But it's not just redemption that Jesus' blood provided. The third word, it also provided reconciliation. So propitiation has provided redemption and reconciliation. To reconcile, another word that we don't use very often, but a really simple word. It just means that you make two enemies into two friends. You change hostility into friendship. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. If you will look with me uh, to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 10. In Romans 5, just so you know, Paul has a lot to say about this one. It's all about reconciliation. Romans 5 verse 10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, will you shall be saved by his life. What Paul is saying is that in the past, we were God's enemies. We were as far from God as you could get. We were hostile to God. We were under his wrath. And then Jesus died for us. And that hostility was transformed into friendship. Now we are near to God. Now we are friends with God. And and even better, more than friends of God, we are now children of God. That's what Paul tells us in one of my favorite verses, Galatians 3.26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of us who were God's enemies, now we are God's children. Now and forever, you are a son or a daughter of the king because of the death of Jesus Christ. But notice how that verse ends. Through faith in Christ Jesus. The redemption and reconciliation that Jesus provides is not automatically applied to you. Now, God gives us a choice. God gives all human beings a choice. Do we want it or not? Do we want the redemption and reconciliation that God provides us through Jesus? Or do we want to stand on our own two feet before God and offer him our good deeds, all the things that we have done? God gives us a choice. Will we receive the gift that Jesus has made possible in faith? And so, let me take you to one of the most famous verses of the Bible. We should have this one memorized if you haven't memorized it already. If you're sitting down with your non-Christian friend or relative or classmate and you're walking them through these truths, bring them at the end to John 3.16. This is a summary. draws it all together. It says, For God so loved the world, out of love for us, 
that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish. You will not suffer wrath, but you will have eternal life. You will live with God as his child now and forever. All you have to do is believe. Jesus' redemption, his reconciliation is yours if you will simply accept it in faith. Simply believe that Jesus really did die on the cross for your sins and rise from the dead to give you eternal life. And so I would be remiss if I did not pause for a moment and ask you, do you believe? Do you believe that you are a sinner? You believe that you, you have fallen short of God's perfect standard. You've done things that are, that are wrong. Do you believe that your sin has a serious consequence, that the penalty of your sin is God's wrath, that he must punish it? Do you believe that there are no good deeds, no church attendance, no charitable giving that could ever earn you God's love and forgiveness? Do you believe that God sent his son, Jesus, to to do what you couldn't do to fix your sin problem, to take your sins upon himself and die in your place and then rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life as a free gift? Do you believe If you want to have eternal life right now, you don't have to walk the aisle. There's no magic prayer you have to say. You don't even have to come talk to me, although I would love to talk to you. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do right now in the privacy of your own heart as you sit in your chair is simply say, I believe. I believe that I am a sinner who's worthy of the wrath of God. There's nothing I can do to change that, but I believe that Jesus, God's son, died for my sins in my place and rose from the dead so I could have eternal life. The moment you tell God you believe that, you are saved. You are born again. You are reconciled. You are now and forever a child of God. You will never suffer the wrath of God if you believe. That's the most important reason that Jesus went to the cross, to fix our sin problem, to be our propitiation, to take our punishment in our place, the just for the unjust so that we could be delivered, so that we could be redeemed from sin and reconciled to God. That's the primary reason why Jesus went to the cross. And if you're having that conversation at lunch today with your non-Christian friend or classmate, that's what you should focus on. But I want us to go a little bit further because even though that's the most important reason why Jesus chose to go to the cross, it's not the only reason. That's often where we stop. We don't look at the rest of scripture and see there's a number of reasons why Jesus went to the cross. So that's the most important one. Let me walk you through the ones that the Bible reveals that are not quite up to that level, but still incredibly significant. Why did the son of God choose to go to the cross? Second reason is to reveal to us the extent of God's love. There's not a lot of things that I know for sure about human beings. If I I meet somebody I've never met, there's not a whole lot that I can say for certain about that person until I begin to talk to him or her. But, But there is one thing for sure that I can say about that person. I can say for sure, no matter who they are, I know that they want to be loved. I know that about all human beings. There's not a human being on the planet who doesn't want to know that someone loves them. Whether you are young or old, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are American or Korean or South African, it doesn't matter. Whoever you are, man or woman, whoever, I know that all of us want to be loved. We want to know that someone cares about us, that we have value in someone's eyes. The entire human race wants to be loved. What they don't realize is that the cross is the proof that they are. The cross is the definitive proof that every person on this planet is loved. Look with me, Romans 5 again. Romans 5, verse 8. 
It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, all that we deserved from God was wrath, was eternal punishment. But instead of giving us that, instead God sent his own beloved son to die for us, to be our sacrifice. It's the greatest act of love ever in the history of humanity. God sent his son out of love for us. That's how much God the Father loves you. He sent his own son to suffer and be tortured and be crucified for you. But it's not just God the Father who loves us. The cross also proves that God the Son loves us. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus wasn't compelled to go to the cross. He was not coerced to go to the cross. He willingly chose the cross. He was a willing sacrifice. He chose it out of love for you. The Son of God willingly chose to be tortured and crucified because he loves you. If you ever want to know, am I loved, all you have to do is look at that thing. Just look at the cross. That is your definitive proof that you are loved so deeply You are truly loved. All the human race, we're so focused on this idea. What is true love? What is true love? It's that. That the perfect almighty creator, God, who who owed you nothing but wrath, freely chose to go up there and die for you. To take your punishment, your abuse, the suffering and death that you deserve, he willingly took it in your place. That's love. The cross is proof that you are infinitely loved. That's the second reason why Jesus went to the cross, to show you and prove to you the extent of God's love for you. The third reason why Jesus went to the cross is to reset human history. Look again, Romans 5, verse 18. Paul is going to compare Adam to Jesus. He's going to compare the choice that Adam made in the garden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the choice that Jesus made to go to the cross for us. Verse 18 So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And what Paul is telling us, Adam and Eve, you know the story. Adam and Eve were created as the pinnacle of of all of creation to rule over it, to enjoy it. And God placed them in a garden. It was full of fruit. It was awesome. He, He made life perfect for them. Life was wonderful for Adam and Eve. And then they blew it. They freely chose to sin, and by that choice to sin, they plunged themselves and all of their descendants, the entire human race, into sin and death and condemnation. The moment that Adam ate that apple, the story of humanity became a tragedy. We were headed towards doom and destruction from which we could not deliver ourselves. And then at the cross, God hit the reset button. That's what the cross is. It's God's huge reset button, do-over button on humanity. He hit the reset button to give us hope. God provided deliverance at the cross. He provided a way out of the condemnation of sin. He provided a way out of darkness and into life, into righteousness, into hope. I had a professor at seminary named John Hanna who has a remarkable gift for making really complex topics really simple. You take something that just could barely wrap your mind around and he would boil it down to where it's really simple, crystal clear. And so one day he goes to the board and he says, I'm going to boil down all of human history for you. 
Human history, that's, that's pretty complex stuff. I, I didn't do great in history, and school was hard for me because you had to remember all this stuff, all these people and names and nations and battles and dates and events, and it was just too much for me. History is really complex, but, but John Hannah, he, he boiled it all down. He said, no, it's actually, human history is really, really simple. If you want to understand human history, here's all you really have to know. This is what human history looks like. It has a beginning and it has an end, and in between, there is only one event that really matters. Only one thing matters. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only event that has real meaning in human history. Everything before the cross is looking forward to it, and everything after the cross is looking back at it, because it is the one and only event in human history that really matters. The cross is a turning point where God turned tragedy into triumph, where God provided a way out of doom and destruction by dying for our sins, by providing life and joy, peace, hope, and love. That's human history. That's all you need to know about history right there. The cross and the grave. That is when God hit the reset button on human history and gave us hope. That's the third reason why Jesus went to the cross, to reset human history. Fourth reason he went to the cross was to rout our enemy. Turn to Colossians. A couple books after Romans. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, Paul has a lot to say about the cross, about the the meaning of the death of Jesus. He's going to begin in familiar territory. He's going to tell us about how the death of Jesus has set us free from sin. Look with me, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then here's the thing you really want to see, verse 15. Here's where Paul adds something new. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the authorities. Who is that? That's Satan and his demonic kingdom. Satan and demons, all demons, were disarmed the moment that Jesus died on the cross. Disarmed, it's an interesting word. It means stripped. And when you're talking about soldiers, the idea is when a soldier is conquered, he has to drop his weapons. That's, that's what happened. As Jesus died on the cross, Satan lost his only weapon. What is Satan's weapon against human beings? Do you know? What's the one weapon he has? Guilt. That's his weapon he uses against us, guilt. Actually, in the book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser, the one who accuses the brethren night and day before God. Satan's got this great racket going. He, he tempts human beings to sin, and then when they do sin, he accuses them before God and crushes them in guilt. That's how Satan operates, tempt and then crush, tempt and then crush. But Jesus died for all of our sins, the ones you did in the past, the ones you'll do today, the ones you'll do in the future, all of them are paid for. All of them are forgiven. Jesus died for all of your sins, and so there is no room for guilt left. There's no place for guilt, so Satan has no weapon against you. There's no weapon he can use against you because Jesus disarmed him at the cross. Satan is still active. He is still alive. He is still here. He's still powerful. He's still dangerous, and yet Paul wants us to understand in no uncertain terms. Satan is defeated. He was defeated the moment that Jesus died. That's the great irony of the cross. It looked like Satan's greatest triumph. Satan was the one who wanted Jesus to be crucified. He's the one who led Judas to betray. He's the one who led the crowds to yell, crucify him. He engineered the crucifixion. Can you imagine the party that Satan was having? 
as the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross. But it's not a party that lasted very long because Jesus died pretty quickly and all of a sudden Satan looked up and realized, oh dang, I just signed my death certificate. That's what the crucifixion was. It was me being defeated. Satan thought he had won and actually he lost. It was an unmitigated defeat for Satan and a complete victory for Jesus. The beauty of the cross is that at the cross, the victim became the victor forever. The cross looks like Jesus loses. It is in fact, Jesus wins now and forever. Satan was defeated at the cross. And so why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus choose to die? He didn't have to. No one pushed him there. No one compelled him there. Why did he choose to die? Number one, most important, to fix our sin problem. To propitiate the wrath of God. Take our punishment in our place so that we could be redeemed and set free from the penalty of sin and reconciled to God as his children now and forever. Second, to reveal to us the infinite extent of God's love for us. Third, to reset human history. And fourth, to rout and defeat and destroy our enemy. Now, all of those incredible truths are, are so magnificent, so powerful. We can't just walk out of here this morning. We can't just look at that stuff. Oh, that's great, and head out of here. We need to do something with this truth. We need to do something with what we have learned about Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate communion. Communion is our opportunity to remember the meaning of the death of Jesus. And so as the men come forward... And pass the elements. The band is just going to play instrumental while the elements pass. I ask you to take this time and reflect on the significance of Jesus' death. And here's how you do that. If you want to understand the death of Jesus, if you want to understand its significance, I want you to take the next minute and think about what your life would be like if Jesus would have said no. It was his right. He didn't have to die for you. He could have simply said, no, I'd prefer not to be beaten and crucified. He could have said no. So I want you to take this time and think, how would your life and how would your eternity be different if Jesus would have said no? says in 1 Corinthians 11 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying This cup is the new covenant In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, I pray that in the midst of all of the weighty stuff that we covered this morning, Lord, I pray that we would not lose sight of the simple truths. Thank you that your son Jesus died for us. Thank you that he took the punishment that we deserved. He deserved life and reward. We deserved death and wrath, and yet he exchanged that. He gave us life and took our punishment. Thank you that he died in our place. I pray for any person in this room, Lord, who, to whom that is new information. Maybe they have never understood it. Maybe they have never seen it clearly. I pray, help them this morning, Lord, to believe 
that your love, your forgiveness, your eternal life is a free gift. They don't need to work for it. They don't need to earn it. It's theirs for free. Just help them to receive it, Lord, to believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And I pray, Lord, this week as we prepare to celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to draw near to you. I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see anew, to see clearly the significance of the death of Jesus. Help us to worship him this week. Help us to appreciate what he has done. Father, for so many of us, we, we have a cross on our neck or we have crosses hanging in our house and we don't think about them at all. I pray that we would this week. I pray that we would be struck by the meaning of the cross, the significance of it. Thank you that you chose to send your son in love and that he chose in love willingly to die in our place. In his name we pray, amen. Now if you'll stand, let's end by singing together.